1: At this time of year, there's nothing quite like getting your hands dirty by reaching into the soil in the garden, and I like the simple task of digging into the ground, planting flower bulbs and looking forward to their explosions of colour in the spring. I'm Fiona Davison, and today we are very much Gardening with the RHS. Autumn is the time to get your bulbs in the ground. I'm thinking of delicate crocuses, fiery tulips and hopeful daffs. Bulbs make wonderful displays in containers or borders, and they're some of the easiest and most rewarding garden plants to grow. Here's RHS Gardening Advisor Jenny Borden with some top tips for how to get the most out of them.
2: Bulbs are wonderful. They're like little bundles of promises of spring. There's something to look forward to. They're an optimist's plant. You plant these rather uninspiring packages that arrive in the post or you get from the garden centre and then you're rewarded with a wonderful show of flowers in the spring. I don't think you can go too far wrong with bulbs and that's the beauty of them. Anybody can grow bulbs, even if you've got a really small space. They grow well in troughs. They grow well in containers, they grow well in the ground and they grow well coming up through grass. Bulbs do very well in containers, just in straightforward multi-purpose compost. You can plant one type of bulb. So you might just, for example, go for tulips, in which case you'd be planting them three times the depth of the bulb you can go down as much as six inches if you've got room in the pot. That just helps prevent squirrels from digging them up. And also, if they're quite tall tulips, it can make them sturdier and more resistant against wind. You can plant in layers, in the sort of lasagna effect, if you like. So you can have a mixture of small bulbs and working your way down. So in essence, the smaller the bulb, the more shallowly it's planted at that same rule of three times the size of the bowl. You start off with your pot of compost partly filled and you lay your tulips in the bottom and then another layer of compost and then your narcissi, for example, your daffodils and then you might top off with some crocuses. And if you choose your varieties carefully then you can have colour from February uh, right the way through to May. Now is the ideal time to get daffodils, scillas, and crocus bulbs in the ground and in containers. The sheer range of bulbs that are available in the shops is quite daunting. So to narrow down the field a bit, you might want to choose those that have got the RHS Award of Garden Merit, which just shows that you've got a plant that's got a proven track record. And you'll see the little uh, symbol of the trophy on the packets of bulbs. So among those, siberica is a really good one to go for, for fairly early colour, beautiful rich blue, little flowers on small plants, wonderful plants in drifts underneath trees and shrubs because they tolerate a bit of shade. So they'll start the season off well for you. Amongst the crocuses, for a really early crocus, go for Crocus thomasinianus. And then as the season progresses, you could have snow bunting, And golden yellow is another one. Amongst the daffodils, so many to choose from. But for a classic yellow trumpet with yellow petals, Carlton is a good one to go for. Salome is cream with a yellow trumpet. And then to really brighten up those spring days when it's not sunny, how about a pure white one, Misty Glen? So that's bound to be a talking point. And it really, really glows. It's pristine white. Most unusual. I've just had a bulb delivery myself and I've picked out some tulips that are going to be perennial. uh, A pale yellow one called Honky Tonk. What I'm interested in is Gladiolus byzantinus, which is an early flowering gladiolus in cerise. It's a lovely cerise colour or magenta. And that's going to be sort of April, May. So... That's going to be flowering around the time of the irises. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. I was inspired to plant that by going down to the West Country. And it fills a nice sort of gap in the season. We do get quite a few inquiries from people where they've ordered bulbs and they've arrived slightly out of season or they've forgotten to plant them. It's a difficult one, really. It depends how out of season they are. Bulbs will dry out, so you do need optimum storage conditions. So, for example, if you're not ready to plant your tulips, you want to wait until October, November to avoid any issues with tulip fire, then put them in a paper bag or a net so that they can breathe and put them in a kind of cool place. Sometimes we get calls from people in January who have done that, Hang them up somewhere and completely forgotten. And I would still recommend planting them in January because if you wait until the following year, they'll have just shriveled up or rotted. So just get them in. I think on the whole, I would go for the planting of them, you know, rather than holding on to them for more than three months, say. You could have daffodils literally starting off from January, February and going right through to May. So you might start the season with February gold and the tete-a-tete, those sort of shortish ones uh, start you off in the season and you can go right the way through picking your varieties right through until you get the, the more sort of flat-faced narcissi, which for me culminate in pheasant's eye, the poet's daffodil, uh, which is a lovely creamy colour and it's highly scented. And that's something else to look out for as well with the scented daffodils. But pheasant's eye is one of the last to flower. Lots of lovely historical connotations and flowers for a long, long time, right into May when the weather's heating up. So you've been able to enjoy daffodils for a very long time.
1: Thanks to Jenny Borden. Let's stay in the soil for a little bit longer. Organic growing has become more and more popular and we think of it as quite a new thing. But actually it relies on techniques that are centuries old In the Lindley Library we have lots of very old books where people are explaining very old pre-chemical ways of growing and we're finding we're going back to them. Organic gardening is a way of gardening that relies on natural processes, can be especially beneficial to wildlife and avoids artificial fertilisers and pesticides. Claire Rattanan is a grower based in East Sussex and she's provided organic produce for superstar chef Yotam as well as primary school children in East London. But her journey into growing started slightly further afield.
3: When well, I started my journey into growing in New York, of all places, I was living there working as a documentary producer. I completely chanced on this rooftop farm called Brooklyn Grange, on a walk with a friend one day looking for a flea market and rather implausibly saw a sign that said come and visit our farm on the roof and I mean I defy anyone who who can see uh, such a tantalizing possibility and refuse to go up those stairs and so yeah we went up eight stories and there's this incredible productive verdurous, beautiful beautiful place on top of the roof of a of an industrial building in Queens, underneath the Manhattan skyline, and it's amazing. And it was just full of vegetables and full of enthusiastic people and this, like, breath of fresh air in in what is a very, very fast-paced, intense, busy, constrained city. There was just this space, and it was so amazing that I... Yeah, it was very transformative, to be honest, without sounding too cheesy. You know what, I haven't ever grown any other way than organically. Starting at Brooklyn Grange, which grows not using chemicals, not using pesticides or fungicides or anything like that, but at the time wasn't organically certified, meant that when visitors came to the farm and asked why it wasn't certified organic we would have a lot of conversations explaining that although all the food here is grown using organic principles that that it wasn't really financially viable to get that certification and so from the very very beginning I was really engaged with coming to understand what the point of growing organically why why we do it and how important it is to grow in line with nature and and do things that are sustainable and puts the environment the wider environment and the literal soil under our feet at the center of our growing efforts and yeah so I think I, I there was just never any other option for me I suppose and and I think that especially if you're growing on a smaller scale and it feels possible why wouldn't you? It's easy enough to get produce that's covered in pesticides and herbicides and all that stuff in the supermarket. If you're growing on a small scale, why wouldn't you grow organically? It's okay to have some holes in your leaves and to lose the odd plant to to whatever's flying by, you know. I just think there wouldn't be any point to growing your own or growing on a small scale if you were using chemicals to do it. If somebody was looking to start growing organically, I would actually say it does depend on what space you have available to you. You know, when I started growing, I was living in a in a one bedroom apartment initially in New York and then again in a flat in Hackney and I had no outside space at all. And what I would say to somebody who has a really limited amount of space is maybe start growing in containers. And, and so I would say that's a really great way to start growing no matter what space you have available to you. So three tips for growing organically when you're growing in containers. Let's see. I think first of all, I would say, pay attention. I think that's a great thing about growing on such a small scale is you can really nurture your plants individually. And so watch what's happening. Often, if you've got a problem and you're paying attention, you'll notice it at an early stage and you can intervene. The amount of plants that look like they might have been ravaged by aphids, but that I've managed to just squeeze them off and wipe them off early enough that they have managed to get to adulthood and harvestability with no problem at all because I spotted the problem as soon as it raised its head so yeah pay attention all the time my second tip for growing organic clean containers is the best thing about your containers is they can be moved often. Obviously the biggest one's a bit more of a challenge, but if you've got a small container and you think it's gonna get bothered by slugs, you can move that entirely out of their grasp. I have definitely put a pot of lettuce on top of an old stool that I found on the road. And I've put a bit of Vaseline on each of the legs. <laughs> The slugs just couldn't get up there. It was kind of amazing. So it's amazing how easy it is to intervene and take care of your plants when they're mobile. So that's one of the benefits of growing organically in pots. And my third tip for growing in pots organically is if it's getting too tricky to keep the pests off then invest in barriers so for example if you're growing something that's in the brassica family and you're finding that cabbage whites are an issue or flea beetles an issue then you can use insect proof mesh and because you're growing on a small scale you can group all your plants together and just throw that insect proof mesh over the top of it and anchor it down and so I would say think about how you can create barriers between you your plants and the pests you know I, I use bird proof netting on almost all of the things that I grow brassicas are another one that I love by pigeons so bird proof netting is really good for that I think one of the challenges is you might not get to harvest every last tomato or courgette or lettuce leaf. You might have to accept the fact that you you have to share them with some other bugs and and I think the thing that's hard to get your head around is we're not trying to eradicate any one quote unquote pest you are definitely trying to limit the damage that they cause to your plants. But but to some extent, it's fine for you to have some pests as long as you're encouraging predators. What you're trying to do is cultivate balance, you know. And so I think that's one of the things that's quite hard when it comes to growing organically is to accept that damage is normal and that sometimes loss is normal. Not everything is going to work the same all the time if you're not using chemical interventions to create and recreate the same situation the same yield every season and so I think that can be really really challenging because you know especially if you're growing on a small scale it's quite hard to accept when something doesn't work out because you're you put so much love and care into nurturing this plant and you know sometimes you can can't out your beans go away for the night and turn up and really they've been reduced to stubs by the slugs you know it's really disheartening but yeah the worst thing you can do i think is experience that and then put down slug pellets because that's just so so bad for the environment so bad for nature and so i think the thing that's really hard to accept when you're growing organically is that it might not always go the way you want it to and you might not have control over that but We don't just grow for ourselves, we grow for the other occupants of our garden. At least that's how I see it when I look at how badly decimated my purple sprouting broccoli is right now. (laughs) And it doesn't mean I don't pick those caterpillars off and feed them to my chickens. I do. It's not a merciless garden. I was raging when I saw how much damage they'd done and how they'd figured out how to get under my insect-proof mesh. I was livid, but that doesn't mean that they're... I don't understand why it happened. And I'm glad that cabbage white butterflies do exist. I don't want them to go away entirely. I just want them to ignore my brassicas. Please. Please. (laughs) I think growing organically is the thing that will save our food system. And I think it's more complicated than that. You know, there's industrialised versions of growing organically that are... Also destructive and a bit deceptive as to whether they have environmental benefit. I think, you know, it's not a catch-all, easy answer to how we address the problems within our food system and the destruction of our food system. But I think the more people who, if they're growing at home, don't buy those chemicals and fuel the market for those chemicals and, and let their gardens be as they are, then we're one step closer to creating the kind of robustness that will push back against the climate crisis that we, we are seeing very very real manifestations of you know and so I also think that growing organically and, and engaging with food that's grown organically is one step towards caring for the environment more broadly. I do think every time a, a chemical isn't used is something that nature thanks us for and so yeah I really believe that growing organically can be one of the first steps to caring about the natural world more broadly.
1: Claire Ratnan. Let's zoom out from our back gardens now and take a look at the wide open 955 hectares of Richmond Park in South London. If you've had a stressful day so far, our next guest should help we asked garden designer Tom Massey to tell us about a place that really connects him with nature.
4: So I think my first memory of Richmond Park was very, very early. I think it was a very young baby. And I, I really remember the giant oak trees and the canopy of the trees as you walk through them. Looking up and seeing the leaves and, you know, seeing that change throughout the seasons as well from autumn through to winter and then spring when all the leaves come back fresh and green. I think spending lots of time in Richmond Park really did instill a respect and love of the natural world. And I think, you know, growing up in the city or growing up near London, having that big open, expansive green space was such a good thing to have and such a benefit to my physical and mental well-being, I think definitely you know was one of the influencing factors on becoming a garden designer the love of that landscape I think it was the first landscape love I suppose you could say so it definitely inspired me to to have a respect for the natural world and to look at landscapes and to take inspiration from them Richmond Park's a real mix of broadleaf woodland. So lots of different species of trees like oak and birch and beech. And then areas of open acid grassland. And the grassland's quite special because it's got these yellow ants that create these tussocks. So it's a site of special scientific interest. And you see lots of species like woodpecker and owls and hawks. And it's famous for its wild deer that roam freely in the park. I think I really love Richmond Park because I grew up in London and having Richmond Park as a green space that, you know, was really close and accessible to me was just so important, I think, when I was growing up. So me and my two younger brothers and my mum and my dad used to go up there all the time and just spend time climbing trees or running around or exploring bits of woodland and, you know, hunting deer. So it was a really nice space to have and, and a really A real benefit, I think, living in a city, having a big green park right on your doorstep. My favourite spot, it's probably Penn Ponds. In the middle of the park, there's an open area of water and there's a bench at the top of the hill that leads down to Penn Ponds that's got this really nice view. So you're looking across ferns, there's woodlands surrounding you and it feels like you are really in the middle of the countryside. You wouldn't know that you were so close to London. For me, it's a real place of relaxation and calm. So during the lockdown, luckily I live, you know, within a sort of 15-minute walk of the park and I've just been spending my daily exercise time up there. Forest bathing is becoming a growing popular movement and it it really does have mental health benefits, I think, spending time in forests and under trees and seeing the way the light comes through the canopy and, you know, the sound and and the smells. it, It really does provide benefit, I think, to mental health and well-being. Having that connection to nature and having that ability to escape the city and to escape the hecticness and the pollution and the traffic and the noise, just having somewhere where you can go and you can walk and you can be surrounded by nature, surrounded by ancient trees and see a range of animals and wildlife and experience something that gives you a, you know, a sense of being in the countryside. Um, that's just so important to have that in a city.
1: Thanks to Tom Massey for transporting us to Richmond Park. Here's a fun fact. It was created by Charles I in the 17th century as a deer park, and the world probably knows it from a naughty black labrador called Fenton who did his own bit of deer chasing. But it's now got such an amazing wildlife value that it's London's biggest site of special scientific interest. One of the best bits about parks are their human spaces too, not just wildlife, and they're filled with memories. So one of my favourite spaces in Richmond Park is the Ian Jewry bench. Ian jury from Ian Jewry and the Blockheads fame. His family donated the bench and it has reasons to be cheerful written on it. And that's one of my favourite things in parks, looking at the inscriptions on park benches and thinking about the people who loved the parks too. So maybe next time you're in a park, have a look at what's written on the benches. That's it for this week. If you want to find out more about today's topics or how to get in touch with our gardening advisors then head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Until next time it's goodbye from me Fiona Davison.